Hi, I'm Robert Majors, and this is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas. I'm your host, Will Rucker, and joining us today is Robert Majors. He is a passionate advocate for the unhoused and working towards creating solutions that provides affordable housing to every person who wants it. So Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. So I start the show the same way every time, and it's with this question. I promise it's the hardest of the interview, but it's also one of the ones that helps us to set a level. And it's simply this. How do you define compassion? Um, I'm pretty, uh, pretty blunt with my words. So I think compassion means um, with compassion or to share compassion or share, share a passion, which is suffering. So like a sharing of suffering, like if uh, somebody else is suffering, you sort of participate in that suffering with them, which will help alleviate their suffering. That's how I see compassion. Yeah, I think that that's a perfect way to define it and going to the actual meaning of the word at the heart. So exactly. And when we're talking about suffering, in these days, we have more than enough to share in, whether it is the issue we're talking about today with homelessness or simply stress and anxiety from the uncertainty of what lies ahead. All of us have a measure of suffering, and when we recognize that we can suffer together and alleviate that, we really see a brighter future. So thank you for that definition. You're welcome. Now I wanna dive into this. Homelessness has been on the news around Las Vegas for a number of reasons, really since the start of COVID, whether it was you know, the, the encampment that was uh, demolished or when they had to have the homeless on the concrete in the parking lot or just some con- content around uh, ordinances that had been passed. So we've kind of made national headlines around this for a while. I just want to open up with you sharing your perspective on the situation here on the ground and how you see it. So um, I think a lot of Las Vegas and a lot of grassroots um, community started organizations and efforts have done a really good job trying to be compassionate with the homeless people and go out and share. I think the community at large has been really um, supportive during this whole uh, COVID epidemic. And it's been going fairly well, in my opinion, from doing this for years, 10 years now. Um, The amount of community that's shown support since COVID started has been great. The response from uh, from the government, city of Las Vegas, city of North Las Vegas, um, that, has been about the same that they've been giving. It's just been escalated and more um, emphasized because of the pandemic. And um, it's it's sort of making them rethink how they handle their business. And unfortunately, their rethinking hasn't been the best or most productive 
way of handling the situation. So I think that it showed a lot of our, uh, our room to improve and hopefully the communication with the city of Las Vegas and uh, the, the whole like the whole valley here will open up and we can start coming up with better solutions like they've been doing in Oregon and Washington and LA now they have a small uh, LA mission community. So hopefully the communication starts growing. So that community that's so uh, passionate and has a good heart will um, have a voice with the officials and the government who's making the, the rules and has the money to help. Yeah, and that's certainly one of our goals here at Compassionate Las Vegas is to help these conversations take place and to make space for everyone's perspective to be validated and heard and seen and even felt. So if you don't mind, would you just kind of take us back to 10 years ago when you began working in this area and just give us a high level overview of what exactly you've been been working towards? Well, when I first started, um, it was it was for school and I was just doing some community service work and I went out to serve at a soup line, which I still volunteer with today, the Las Vegas Catholic Worker. And I started serving out there. They served about 150 people. And it was a really simple process. I fit in really smoothly. They gave me a job. There was no paperwork. There was no like, even to volunteer, it was really easy. So it it gave me a, a perspective of like, okay, I can help people and I don't have to jump through hoops to do this, I could just come show up and do what I got to do and continue with my day. And eventually that made my day was early in the morning and it became really the highlight of my day. So um, eventually moving forward, I started pursuing the path of trying to help a little more, trying to think a little bit more about community and do things on my own. I started doing my own fundraising projects, doing different events, talking about issues um, to the community. Um, okay. I tried to do as much as I could to sort of get involved into that world. Um, eventually it formed my, uh, I, I formed like a more solid structure for what I wanted my life to be about. And I decided that I wanted to continue like my pursuit for, uh, architecture and design and get a engineering degree. So I went for engineering and this, you know, my, my involvement in community has like put me into different positions, um, building with my hands and learning skills. And eventually it led me last year to building these small huts um, for homeless people at this encampment. And it was a really affordable thing. We, you know, I'm glad like I had all the experience a, with the people that were serving and B with like being able to build to like make, to marry the two into this, uh, this work that I enjoy and has, is a, uh, a, uh, like something that you could actually see physically being done, um, to, to try to help people. So it's not like the end solution, but it's, it's a good stage of my path. So let's, let's dive into that piece there. 
because that, of course, is another thing that made national news. And it actually came up in one of our interfaith council meetings. We uh, just got some news about it. And, you know, I, I'm like, I don't know what's happening. So um, I don't know the background. I don't know anything. So I wasn't going to make a judgment about it in that moment. But it did send me on a quest to investigate and to figure out what exactly is happening. So let's start at the beginning of this encampment. How did you plan where you were going to build, how you were going to build? How did you recruit people to help and fundraise? How did you coordinate with the city to get the services on site? Just kind of walk us through the entire process. Okay. So first of all, it wasn't just me. There was a lot of like people in this involved and like the the thing I, I like most about where I'm working uh, with the community is that it's not a, a structure of like, oh, this person has to answer to this person and this person. Everybody's on the same field. It's horizontal. We communicate with each other. Everybody is able, as they could, as they are able to, do what they can. So this encampment that we're talking about was a place where multiple organizations provide services. People come together, they knew the people. And at some point I ended up being part of that group of people. And then like the idea came about, hey, we should build some huts and we could put them here so that they have more of a, a decent way of living. So who um, not bombs is another organization that does a soup line out here. They did a post about, you know, putting up some, doing some fundraising to build these huts. And they raised enough money to build their first one. I was a fan of the huts already. It was a project. The huts, if you haven't seen them, are like a, just like a little um, tarp over a metal mesh with two walls. It has a front door that you can lock and a back window. And there's enough room in there for like a queen size bed. And of course, some like walking space. So we decided we could try to build one of these huts and we raised like $2,500. And I got with the, the guy to build them. He was like, I know some people that are living on this lot, like in this uh, encampment. And that's the first thing you want to know. Like, you kind of want to have a relationship with people and say, hey, we want to build this. Is this something you want? So first we, you know, we had a, see who was interested. And of course, people are interested in getting a safer place to stay. So we started building. And at first we were just building in our, uh, in one of the members' backyards. And we built the first hut, I think, for like a thousand dollars. And it was a 10 by a bigger hut. And we set that up and um, somebody was living in it. And that, that hut actually got burned down. And it was a really like, we were pretty upset about the whole thing. Cause you so know, before we move, before we move past that. So the first one you built in someone's backyard for about a thousand dollars. Yes. You said it's 10 by 10. That one was a 10 by 10 hut. It was a lot so of work. A lot of work went into it, a lot of room. And you actually are the engineer that designed it. I designed it. Um, the concept for the structure was, uh, you know, it's from the Northwest. They, they've been building these to, for the homeless people in the Northwest to live in. So already I know that it's going to be good against like harsh weather, you know, they, they get snow. So 
we just had to protect from a little bit of like coldness. So yeah, we insulated it. We bought the parts, we designed it. Um, I have some, some experience designing and constructing. So yeah, we, we did it all. It was actually just me and another guy named Joey. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's incredible. That's, that's initiative, that's compassion and action, wanting to solve the problem of someone not having a home, giving them a place to stay. Now, you mentioned it burned down. When that happened, well, if you don't mind, how did it burn down? But then secondly, when that happened, how did you feel? So um, we built it. We had somebody living in it. The person living in it, everybody knew. And, you know, it's an encampment of 150 people. So I think that person might have like overstepped a boundary with somebody. And I think it was like an act of like lashing out at this person to like burn down their hut when when they were gone. And it was like somebody sent me a video of it. And I was, first of all, like... I know that person and I know the valuable stuff they had in there. And it was just like horrible that they lost their stuff. That was the big thing. Um, I knew we had plans to, to build, to build more. And I, I knew like people would be a little devastated by this, but from being like around for so long and seeing like the stuff, the way the homeless people are treated, and the way the city treats the homeless, like they come out with dumpsters and just like pick up encampments and throw all their stuff away weekly. And it's a really like devastating thing to just like experience once, but they experience this weekly. So to me, I'm like, okay, we're gonna keep building this. You know, I was down about it, but I know that it's a long road to, to get to where we gotta go and there's gonna be accidents and there's gonna be, you know, um setbacks so i was upset about it yeah yeah but it it didn't stop you. say that again it was our hardest hut to build too after that, we made them a little smaller and easier to build and uh yeah we just we did keep going yeah and so with the new design or the redesigned smaller version what was different about it besides size well it was um we reduced the cost to $600 per unit. Mm-hmm. Um, we started um, getting like a process down to build them. That was simpler. There were less pieces. There's only three pieces now for the bigger hut. There were like five pieces. So there's three pieces and that's really important, especially if you're going to start bringing in volunteers like we have, we get 10 volunteers a week now to build these huts. So when you're bringing in volunteers who have never cut anything before, it's good to have a set like plan that you can say, okay, this is how we're going to do this. And by the time, by the end of the day, they got the confidence of uh, being able to go out and probably build one on their own. You know, it's, it's really like a fun process. So. So did I hear you right when you said the the total cost for one of the units is $600, $600. And so if, Please feel free to say, you know, that's too intrusive or anything like that. But um, I just kind of want to dive into how this is is manufactured and, and what's included because I have not seen them. And so I don't have a good reference point. 
Um, perhaps you could share a photo that I could include later in the in the broadcast. But yeah. with this this unit that was six hundred dollars, you said there's insulation. So is that against heat and cold or just cold? Heat and cold insulation uh, basically stops the slows down the transfer of heat. So um, if it's warm inside, it's going to stay warm inside. If it's cold inside, it's going to stay cold inside as the day changes. So um, it is insulated. You could always insulate more, but it just costs more money. Like we, when we have more money to spend, we've been double insulating some of them, which will cost an extra $100. Um, so it is insulated. The two walls are insulated. The door uh, is a regular two-foot door. It has a lock and key so people can lock their stuff inside of the, the uh, hut during the day and they don't have to carry it around. They can go take care of their business and come back to it. it has a window that you could open for ventilation. Um, the hut itself is a, have you ever seen a Conestoga wagon? No. It's like the old like West Western wagon that's covered. It's a covered oh, wagon. Yeah, yeah. It's got that yeah. shape. It's named after that wagon because it's got that shape and it's got the front and the back and it's just like a small living space dimensions are five by 10 and it's got like a wooden floor. Um, yeah. A tarp covers it there. They could be more attractive and cute, but you know, we, for the price that we're making them, we kind of have to cut back on the aesthetics. Yeah. So for $700, you can double insulate and provide a space. You said that's five by 10. For, so an individual could could get out of the elements, in a sense, and into some sort of shelter that has a lock and key. It gives them a little storage for their belongings, and they feel a sense of safety and security. Yes. That's, I mean, from, from this perspective, it sounds completely reasonable. So what I want to get into now is how many did you build? And then how did you go about collaborating with the city to get the permitting and things done? And then what happened? Okay, so we built 26 of them up in that encampment by the time they were destroyed the first time. We've built about nine or 10 of them since. And those are like, we're strategizing different ways of putting them up. Um, but for the ones at the encampment, we started to build them. By the time we got like our fourth one up there, the city of Las Vegas, Metro, they were coming in and out with their organizations, trying to help the encampment, trying to monitor it, see what's going on. And we were talking to them when they were there and they said, well, those are beautiful. Um, this is this encampment won't be here forever, but when it's time to, to move this encampment, we'll let you know and we'll have these moved to a place. And, um, you know, Councilman Black was like um, from North Las Vegas. He was like looking for a property. He had his he had, you know, he's got a thousand things on his plate and he was looking for a solution to this like everybody is. But it's just a matter of like, how much are you going to look? How much are you going to prioritize this? So. Right. To him, he probably had a thousand other things to do, and it wasn't a huge priority, but he did want to try to do something. He just never was able to. Um, Joey, who's the, the guy from Funat Bombs, he's really good at like 
press in to, to get a good communication. He makes the communication happen, which is great. And he, he would ask them for porta potties. He would ask them for the dumpster. They would come and say, we're going to clean up and raid this encampment. They wanted to raid the city of Las Vegas, North Las Vegas, wanted to raid that encampment like three or four times. And we showed up with protests and signs saying, you know, don't raid this encampment. At the time, it was uh, a guideline from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, to not raid that encamp- any encampments. So before we get to, to the raid piece, you were able to create 26 of these. Now, you mentioned that there are about 150 individuals at this site. So less than a third, or really, I'm not great at middle mass, so we'll just say less than a third had a place to, to go. How was the, the culture within that site? Were people accepting that some were able to, to have a, a hut and others were still outside? Or did they go you know, one night in and then they rotate? How was that part? So that encampment uh, was around for a long time. And it, it homeless, like home, the homeless community has been around for a long time. So there's a lot of people who live on the streets. Um, it started, we started building in July and it was raided in December. So in that period of time, um, there was a lot of people coming in and coming out. And we basically just made a list of people. After our first one, people would come by and say, hey, I want to get one of those. So we put their name on the list. Whoever came up and said they wanted one, we put their name on the list. We had a list of like 50 people uh, ready and they knew they were on the list. So um, we of course built for the first people uh, and just did it in order. We didn't really have like a, oh, this person is this qualification or this person needs this. Uh, We like this person better. It wasn't any of that. It was just simple, put your name on the list, you get it. And that worked, you know, some people, didn't get along with other people. So we didn't put their huts next to each other. You know, there is like some monitoring going on. Some people uh, left their hut and didn't want it. So we gave it to the next person on the list. Um, and other- did you provide a bed in the hut as well? Or what, what was actually inside when you opened the door to the individual seeking it? We put a uh, cot because it did have room for a bed but the cot is more of like a single person and it gives them more space if they wanted to use it for other stuff. So we put a cot and a fire extinguisher and a smoke alarm. So they, they had electricity as well then or the battery operated? Battery, battery. Okay. Wow. So fire extinguisher. So you're thinking safety fire alarm so that people are aware if something sparks, I mean, it sounds like you really put a lot of thought and a lot of heart into this process but what I'm, I'm hearing in this is it was a slower process because you as an individual, you know, of course, you have your partners with this, but there was no, no large organization that could deliver 150 of these at one time. So you're, you're kind of doing this step by step. You've got a system within the little small community that's existing already, and individuals are choosing to, to participate and then also being patient as the, the process is, is going along. They know they won't have their, their hut as soon as they sign up. So they're still waiting and know that they're you know, number 30 on the list. And here we are at number 26. And then the city comes in 
and demolishes this. What happened before that? Who did they contact? Did you know this was occurring? Just just kind of fill me in on this gap because I'm, I'm missing some pieces here. So um, the city, so the wash is on city property. Along the wash where city everybody's trespassing. And um, the wash, the wash goes to, you know, the sewer and gets, gets cleaned in the storm drain system and, you know, goes back into Lake Mead. So technically that water is returning to Lake Mead. So now it's like a health concern of like what's going into the wash. So there's lots of like uh, reasons that the city wouldn't want homeless people camped there. Um, so throughout, they would be uh, posting signs that said, you're trespassing, you have 30 days to leave. You know, they consistently did that and nobody ever came. Um, we would talk to them. If we felt like there was gonna be a raid or there was an announcement, we'd talk and call them and say, hey, let us know what's going on. They said they would call us if they were ever gonna raid so we can come move the huts. Um, and eventually one day, like, I guess like four in the morning, one of the people living in the huts gets a knock on the door and says, uh, you have 15 minutes to leave. We're going to destroy the huts. So the person living in that hut had 15 minutes to get whatever they had and get out. So Robert, thank you for giving me that piece because what I'm envisioning is just a disconnect in communication. It sounds as though there were individuals that you were working with that may not have been able to communicate clearly with their counterparts and perhaps a different part of the organization. I will just tell you, in my family, we're a small family of maybe 10 individuals on a regular basis. We have communication mishaps all the time. So on this scale, I'm just scaling this up to say, you know, it's easy for the ball to drop. It's, it's unfortunate, I'm not making light of what occurred, but what I'm what I'm hearing in the way that you've presented this this scenario is there was someone you were dealing with, and then someone else came in and did something different than kind of what was the standing agreement. But what also concerns me is that there were notices posted giving you a 30-day window, and there was nothing more official that followed. So when you got those notices, and I understand you talked to the, the, the city or your contacts, and they said, well, we'll actually let you know when we're going to enforce it. When that happened, did you take any steps to find a new location or to begin the process of moving? Because, I, I mean, moving a, a five by 10 structure is not easy. You can't just, you know, put it, I have a little Prius, so you can't just stick it in the trunk, you know. So it's got to have some planning behind that. What, what did you do in that moment to, to ensure the sustainability of your work? So, um, first, I, I, I should start by saying, like, the project moved forward based off of funding, and it was completely community-funded. So every week, we weren't sure if we were going to keep building because we weren't sure if funding would be there. So that was always like the first priority was to keep building. Uh, coming up with solutions to move them to a safer location is like uh, basically uh, finding land. To, to put it in perspective, we still haven't put all the huts that we've made up. 
because we're there's nowhere that they will be like accepted on a where they won't be destroyed you know for me personally since i know the value of like having a place i know that uh people living on the streets may get a check but it's gone within two weeks from staying at a weekly i know the value of having a place even for a month so for this this 600 hut to last uh six months that's going to save this person so much money and it's already sustained its lifespan in my opinion for that like for its purpose um for the actual community itself i know we need land we're still working on it we got we got funding now to buy land we're looking for land we're looking for uh a place that's going to be acceptable we're looking through codes that are going to be like something the city can work with us on i've had talks with the city since um tiny home communities are like a common thing and it shouldn't be new to people. So there's a lot of steps to make it sustainable. Um, and it's just a matter of taking those steps. But for that encampment, um, the, only, the only thing that was keeping it sustainable was like the, the city being involved and communicating with us and um, trying to work with them to make it safe and acceptable. And that's what a lot of our efforts went towards going out there, trying to do cleanups, trying to keep the trash in the dumpsters, getting the porta potties put out there, uh, trying to make it safe for people to walk around there, like taking care of that community and like addressing the issues that the city would bring up, like, oh, there's too much trash or it's not safe. Like we try to address those to make the, that encampment more sustainable. But to them, it was just illegal outright and they wanted it to be removed i see and trespassing is illegal you know we get that and we also get that when you're putting things into the wash and that goes into the water supply there there's just a, a chain of effects that that happens so you know we get all of that right and these are humans these are people these are our brothers and sisters and our neighbors and friends and heck, there are enemies too, right? So but these are humans at the at the core level. This is this is another human being that needs a place to live. When you see that and you've made these efforts to create some sort of shelter, it's not ideal. You know that. It's not what you would want. If you had the means to do something more, you certainly would. That's evident. When you do all of this work and then it comes crashing down. What, what motivates you to keep doing the work? Well, knowing, knowing that I can is, is the biggest motivator. Um, I know that, uh, that the things that I do are, uh, are inspirational to other people. And I know that my small actions, um, if seen by many, will become like much more. So I'm motivated to just like be a good example of, of what to do right. And I know that when you get knocked down, that you could either stay down or get back up and keep going. So 
like when all those huts got destroyed, I knew it was a horrible thing. I could be optimistic about it. I could be pessimistic about it, but ultimately like my decision to keep trying is going to a motivate the people I'm trying to help and b motivate other people to help. So just, you know, being a good example is, is what keeps me going, trying to, trying to be that light to the world to like, to show them like this is possible, even if like it feels like uh, the whole like city's against you, you know. Just if you think it's right, just keep trying your best, you know. Yeah, that's beautiful to hear, and you are an inspiration, Robert. I I'm so grateful to have been connected to you and to have this conversation because I've had several conversations around this subject and we've touched on the encampment in each conversation, but hearing your side of it is really a a light because what I want people to hear is your heart and to understand that, you know, no, everything didn't go the way you planned. No, it didn't turn out the way you wanted it to, but you're also not stopping it's it's retooling now and finding ways to do it in a way that works for everyone and that's really what life is about as i mentioned my family we have drops in communication we also have disagreements and we can't even decide on what to eat half the time so trying to figure out where to put people that need housing is is not an easy undertaking but I'm, i'm glad that you are in it and moving it forward what would you say is is the thing that keeps you uh, most inspired or what have you seen so far that has you most inspired? Well, um, me and a lot of other people who see it, there's a project up in Oregon done by Square One Villages. It's called Emerald Village. And it's, it's like this small little group of uh, maybe like 20 tiny homes. And this guy, Andrew, Andy, he uh, he got the he got some people together that were living on the street. He said, "Hey, let's design your your house." They they were part of a plan to like design and build their own homes. He bought he got the property bought. He got them moved in, and they're like working and like working towards making payments on it, and it's going to be their home. And I think like that's a beautiful thing to be able to give somebody a home who just needs a place and doesn't need like all the, all the bedrooms that we have here in Las Vegas, all the huge, like half quarter million dollar homes. Um, They're nice, but at the same time, people could just take 10% of that, you know, and live in it and be comfortable. So that was really, that's an inspiration to me to see that the community was supporting it and that it's possible and uh you know i think people i think people respect it especially if they are part of owning it and it's not like a temporary thing i think if they're they they have ownership i feel like that encourages them to be responsible and get to know who they're living with in the community because there's like a, a security there a stability 
Yeah. And anytime you invest something of your own into something, it, it gives it more meaning, whether it's your time or your, your creativity or your financial means, whatever it may be, when you contribute, it just gives it something special. And you, it's almost like having a kid in a way it's part of you. So yeah, yeah, that is, and that is inspiring. There's also a community in Austin that I've been looking at and they're doing a, a wonderful job. So we're trying to model that here in Las Vegas as well. So there are solutions in front of us. And I don't think that this will be a challenge we do not overcome. I do believe we will be able to provide housing to each and every individual who wants it. So what creative solutions can we as a community look towards in order to make housing more available in a very short time span? I think we could we could build housing pretty affordably. It's a matter of getting an, an acceptable um, method of doing it. And usually what people want to avoid doing is bringing down the value of their neighborhood by creating some massive like structure that um, doesn't have any like income or revenue to the community. So by building like individual units, around town and spreading spreading out the housing opportunities um, will make a, a better solution to help house people who can't afford it. So what they're doing in California now is allowing it to be, allowing ADUs, the accessory dwelling unit, to be easier to build. Um, so people can just build one in their backyard and rent it out for a little more, a little cheaper. They can make income while providing somebody an affordable place to stay. And here in Las Vegas, we have plenty of land. A lot of people have big backyards. They could build an accessory dwelling unit, have its own separate entrance, make a little rent for renting that place out and provide somebody a place to stay um, who is in need of uh, housing. And we can, if people have no money at all, all that money that's spent on um, you know, social services can go to help pay that person's rent and just get them into this, this unit. So an accessory dwelling unit would be like a, a little tiny home on someone's property. So on their backyard or the side of their home, it, that's what the, you said ADU would be. Yes. And it has a kitchenette, it has a bathroom. You could live in there. People uh, call them grandmas, dens or casitas because, you know, when their grandparents grow old, that's a place that they could live. Yeah. And I have a casita on, on my home. I built it for my mom when she retired. So, you know, the casita thing is, is common here, but I, I am seeing some potential around expanding this because there are a lot of people that care about our, our community. And this is a way that they can actively engage in providing housing while, you know, I've said, well, if you, if you care so much, bring them into your house, but you know, that's uncomfortable. You don't, you don't necessarily want to live with a stranger, no matter, you know, just safety, right? But if you had a, a little mini house in the back with, like you said, the separate entrance and powered and all of that, then that alleviates a lot of the concerns with what I've heard around the hut encampment. So that's something we should definitely explore. Is that a conversation you've been able to have with the city or, or any officials that can move that ball forward? The city has heard about it. I've been at meetings about affordable housing that brought it up. Um, it's, I think it's a great idea because it's mixing, it doesn't concentrate the poverty. It sort of like 
mixes different people from socioeconomic uh, places together so that they could share their resources, which is great. Um, it's probably, it's more, that's more of an individual thing. Like it's, I think there's a lot of like need for communication between grassroots organization and the government because the government has to consider everybody and all things. And so many grassroots organizations have the time to focus on just homelessness that they could really help bridge the gap between the community and the government getting people these services. So I really think that would be a big step is like just the government putting it in the hands of several, if not dozens of grassroots organizations to help this, uh, this type of like work progress. Well, Robert, I think we just added one more project to your plate. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited about it if it does. <laughs> no, good. I, I think that's got energy behind it. And I've heard from the city that they want to have creative solutions. And the exact thing that you mentioned as far as the concentration is something that they're very much aware of. And what I've heard is often when we look at creating places for the unhoused to be housed, we look at the areas with the most poverty because the land is cheaper. And so your idea of creating this kind of spread out where the entire community gets to participate is I think a really good idea. And I'm gonna put my, my brains around it too. Yeah, cool. With that, what other projects are you working on? Well, um, so I'm, I'm involved, like I stay pretty busy. Uh, the the main the main project this this housing project that I'm talking about with the huts that's taken on like a, a whole organization called New Leaf the New Leaf uh, community Las Vegas um, they're they're just like all over the place they've been doing fundraising they're finding land we're coming up with ideas we just put our first hut on a trailer yesterday so it's mobile and we're just coming up with different solutions that are affordable and sort of like community funded. Another project I work with is the Las Vegas Catholic Worker. We've, uh, they've been serving since 1987 here in Las Vegas. And we're, we've been serving through the quarantine. So we've changed a bit. Um, there's a field called the field uh, to a lot of the, the, the services in the, the historic West side and also the uh, people living on the streets down here on the west side. So um, the city of Las Vegas just fenced that whole field off. And now we're like serving on the sidewalk and trying to figure things out like from that end. So there's a lot of pushback there. Um, another group I work with is uh, Engineers Without Borders. We're, uh, we mainly do work in other countries where we help people who don't even have um, bathrooms, clean water, uh, safe infrastructure. Um, we help them develop like ideas to, uh, and go out and actually get it built. Like we're building a schoolhouse right now for this group, this uh, small town. So that's another project I'm working on. Um, I don't know what else. <laughs> well, I mean, that's enough. 
<laughs> those are some major projects and it's, it's a lot. So you definitely are right. You, you are staying busy with this. I want to ask you to finish a few sentences for me. So I'll say the beginning part and you finish it. Okay. We'll start with this. I'm proudest of. My, my efforts and success. What matters most is. Uh, love and people's happiness. I feel loved when. When people smile and uh, care or, or show affection, I guess. The best things in life are. <laughs> Free. <laughs> okay, it's a song title, right? Well, so. It's also sort of true. Yeah, it really, really is. Last one. I'm here because. Because I have a purpose. Beautiful. Well, Robert, I want to again thank you for your time today. It's such an honor to have this conversation and to, to feel your heart. Or even though we're over Zoom, I just feel the, the radiating love that you carry with you. Is there anything that you want to share with our audience or any final words that you want to make sure we include? Get involved anywhere you can. If you want to get involved with us, uh, you can find me. Uh, my name is Robert Majors. We also do like volunteering every Friday. It's really easy to get involved and your skills are valuable if you are interested in getting involved. So that's, awesome. a, that's a, is there an email address or a website they can visit? They can visit uh, our Instagram. It's a uh, new leaf community LV. So if they need to reach out, yeah. Well, we will ensure that the Instagram ends up in the profile so people can get there really easily. And with that, I think we can leave it there. Cool. Thanks for the interview. Thank you for being here, Robert. <laughs>